0: Hi everyone, and welcome to the ADSR Inspirations Podcast. My name is James Mallion, I'm your host, as I introduce you to inspirational and artful souls from all over the world. I'm deeply interested in music, film, the arts, achieving goals, overcoming struggles and big ideas. So join me as we uncover some life lessons and knowledge. We're based out of Tokyo, Japan, and we'll be speaking with people from all over the world ranging from artists, musicians, creatives, leaders, big thinkers, and those who strive to do and be great. Thanks for listening along, now let's get inspired. All right, hi everyone. Welcome to ADSR Inspirations, and we're back We're back again in Japan for today's interview. I'm really excited for this one as it touches on some of my passions of writing and cinema. Today's guest, Stuart Galbraith IV is a film historian, a critic, and a respected author with an expertise in Japanese film. A selection of his books include The Emperor and the Wolf, The Lives and Films of Akira Kurosawa and Toshiro Mifune, The Toho Studio Story, Monsters Are Attacking Tokyo, The Incredible World of Japanese Fantasy Films, and The Japanese Filmography, just to name a few. Stewart has also done extensive work as a home video special features producer. He's recorded dozens of interesting and informative audio commentaries for both Japanese films of award-winning variety and more obscure gems. He's also a prolific film reviewer who's reviewed thousands of films of all genres for various publications, both physical and online. And for me personally, this was my first introduction to Stuart Back in the early 2000s, reading some of his great DVD reviews on DVD Talk, the website. Stewart is originally from Michigan in the States and has also lived in the LA area in the early 90s, working as a film archivist for major Hollywood studios like Warner and MGM. And since 2003, he's lived in the Kyoto area of Japan, where he continues his writing and work related to Japanese film. But more recently, Stuart has a keen interest in a more personal project in renovating his traditional 200-year-old Japanese home called a minka in Japanese. This lifestyle and community of people living in the countryside in these old country homes has definitely been growing here in Japan, and it'll be interesting to talk to him about this as well. So it's a great pleasure to welcome to the show Stuart Galbraith IV. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thanks for coming on. So I know you've got a strong interest in films really from all over the world, spanning, you know, all genres, basically multiple genres, but you've got a specialty and an affliction for Japanese film in particular. Um, You grew up, you know, not, not too far from where I grew up in Ontario. You grew up in the Michigan area. And Mm. I know, I know you've mentioned this before in other interviews, but I'm curious Kind of how you developed your passion and your love for film, and then in turn Japanese film so like i said i've I've read before you know it was through um, on TV a little bit, and then you mentioned you were going to a filmmaking camp um, can you right, can you right. kind of can you kind of comment on some of your some of your early exposure to film or some of the things that really got you excited about film from a early age?
1: Well, I think to put it into a little context, this was in the Stone Age when dinosaurs were roaming the earth, and things like streaming and the internet and personal computers didn't exist. And uh, home video was uh, in its very earliest uh, stages. Uh, even really before home video and uh, cable television even was pretty much limited to uh, certain markets only in the United States uh, where you could get HBO for maybe three hours a night if you went through this whole process of putting a microwave dish on your roof and ran the signal through a UHF channel and all this kind of stuff. So basically, it was in those days, it was um, you were pretty much limited to five or six channels, uh, VHF and UHF on your television set. Um, But from pretty much as early childhood, I, I always loved watching old movies on TV. And in the Detroit market where I grew up, they. Uh, you know, I would get up Sunday mornings and watch Abbott and Costello and then they would run Tarzan movies at like 11 o'clock. And during the week uh, on a show called Bill Kennedy at the movies, they would show old Warner Brothers gangster movies and uh, RKO film noir. And I just, you know, sucked up all that stuff, everything. And um, as I got older, uh, from about the time I was in late junior high school, I started, uh, riding in cars with friends and going, um, uh, 20 miles or so to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where the university of Michigan was. So it was a university town and they had, um, every weekend, uh, five or six places. You could see movies on campus and they had, uh, repertory film theaters and an art theater. Uh, So I could see a lot of movies that way. So uh, it was just, you know, trying to trying to see everything I could, because particularly in those days, you didn't know if you had a chance to see something, you didn't know when you would ever have another opportunity to see that film ever again. So you just grabbed it.
0: For sure, for sure. Um, Was was that like, was part of the fun of it? Like the difficulty or um, part of the challenge, you know, seeing these obscure films because, you know, like you mentioned, maybe you see okay, it's playing only at this one time, so I don't want right, to miss right. Out. I don't want to miss out on my chance. Um, oh,
1: absolutely! I mean, there were, uh, you know, like a Saturday night where I would try to go to, you know, as many as maybe four movies a night and. Uh, in uh, in the in the pre VCR days, you would get um, in our, in my case, it would be a, a not not TV guide, but a TV kind of directory that came in the Sunday supplements of the Detroit Free Press, and they would list all the movies playing that week. And it was very exciting to get up Sunday morning and see what movies were going to be shown, and you'd go through and you'd mark the ones you wanted to see. And sometimes they would only be playing at you know three forty five a.m. and Uh, had to sneak up and out of, out of bed in the middle of the night and try to watch it and hope my parents didn't catch me and, and, uh, uh, that kind of thing. So, and then also, um, as I mentioned, going to Ann Arbor, you'd be bouncing around from one film venue to
0: another. So, um,
1: so yeah, very
0: exciting. In, In terms of those Ann Arbor screenings were those at more like art house cinemas or w- were those at the university? Were those open to the public? Was it mainly university students or?
1: It was it was a mix of things. Um, uh, we had and still have, fortunately, the Michigan Theater, which is, is a now restored, fully restored movie palace. I, I think it's about 1,600 seats. It's got a big balcony. It's a really beautiful theater. Uh, so they would run things like uh, a double bill of Casablanca and Play It Against Sam with Woody Allen. Uh, that was one I remember going to. And then there was an art house theater that had maybe two screens, and they would show the latest foreign films. And then uh, on campus, they would usually run 16-millimeter prints of old uh, movies of all kinds and, and foreign films. And then also sometimes I would sort of sneak into classes that were showing things. I, I remember going to see, uh, the first time I saw Orson Welles' uh, Chimes at Midnight was I, I snuck into a class and um, the professor kind of caught me before they, they started running the movie. And I said, I, I really want to see this film. I hope you it's okay if I, he's like, anybody that wants to sneak in to see Chimes at Midnight is more than welcome. And um, another film that I saw during this time, which was a little bit interesting, was um, Frederick Wiseman's uh, controversial documentary, Titticut Follies, uh, which at that time uh, could not legally be shown. It's a documentary about um, a mental hospital, and you see some of the abuses that were going on and so on. And so at the time, the film was only... available to, um, uh, psychology, uh, students and interns. Um, but I snuck into that and, um, we all had to sort of raise our hands and, you know, say an oath that we're actually all
0: psychology students. So I was able to see it that way. Right. That's pretty wild. Um, switching over to, um, Japanese film in particular, So at some of those Ann Arbor theaters, would there occasionally be some uh, Japanese films being played or were those more few and far between? Um, Would those be on Um, TV occasionally or? Well, other than um,
1: (coughs) Godzilla type of movies, they weren't, those were the only things really shown on TV. Um, They would occasionally show a Kurosawa film on PBS or something like that, but I I didn't have much awareness of of that at the time. And um, I did occasionally see Japanese movies uh, in those days at these various screenings. Um, I didn't think anything particular about them at the time, except that gradually over time, I think by the, say, mid-1980s, I began to realize that while I ran hot and cold with, say, French films or Italian films, um, almost every Japanese movie I saw I really liked and I was really interested in. So um, I gravitated a, a little bit in that direction, although I, I certainly love movies from all, you know, all different genres and periods and, and countries and cultures and all that.
0: Right, right. So I guess... In in those earlier years, those formative years, what was kind of the initial goal to um, get involved in the film industry, to be a filmmaker yourself? And then was there a moment when you kind of thought you were more interested in the academic or the critical side of things?
1: Uh, well, I think I I knew... Uh from really, even from maybe when I was nine or 10 years old, I wanted to do something related to movies, and I wasn't sure what. And I, I did start making amateur films from about the time I was 10 or 11, and, and then I got into it in a very serious way as a teenager and became more and more ambitious and started even shooting in uh, CinemaScope and stereophonic sound and and then in um by the time i was uh, college age graduated to 16 millimeter so i certainly i i sort of wanted to do that for a while um uh, until my early 20s and uh i was also in that um detroit community where uh other people that became very successful. I mean, somebody like Sam Raimi, who was uh, just a few years older than I was. I, we used to cross paths occasionally. And, uh, and of course, he was very successful with Evil Dead. And that launched a whole career for him and Bruce Campbell sure. and, and that whole group. Um, but I think for me, you had mentioned that I had gone to film camp. And that was, I think, really the turning point for me because, um, uh, this, this film camp, uh, basically you, you went to this, uh, place. It was, it was set up at, uh, Cranbrook Institute, uh, and, uh, it was a week long thing and you, um, uh, you, you, they basically gave you all the tools to make a film. And so at the end of the week, you showed your movie and, Uh, I did it the first year, and then um, one of the heads of the program realized that I really loved watching movies because they also had films around that you could watch and and look at. And so uh, the second year I went, uh, I was surprised. They had actually, just for me, set up this room with a 16-millimeter projector and about um, uh, a five-foot-high pile of film cans in one corner that had, uh, things like short, short films from the national film board of Canada and, uh, feature films as well. Things like duck soup and, uh, Lord of the flies and night of the living dead and, and, and citizen Kane. And that was the the first chance I had to see citizen Kane. And, um, that I think was really, um, maybe the if there is a single moment, that was maybe the the single moment because I had been watching movies for several days and going through these piles. And then I got to Citizen Kane and it was 1.30 in the morning. And I thought, oh, this is really an important movie. I should really watch this. I'll just watch the first reel and then go to bed because it's so late. And I ended up watching it twice until early the next morning. And, uh, and then I watched it like three more times over the rest of the week. So that was, that was really a big deal.
0: For sure. Um, oh, no problem. Um, in, in terms of, in terms of the critical side of things and um, I guess studying about films, studying about how they're made, learning about how you can express what you're watching Um What, what, um, what kind of formal, or I guess, you know, formal or informal training, um, or learning, were you doing, um, let's say, around that time or later? Um, So was it then, I guess, your goal to kind of deconstruct these films or figure out um, how you could express what you were seeing? Well, in terms
1: of formal training, not a whole lot. I mean, I did minor in, in journalism as an undergraduate. and um, But I think for me, uh, a lot of it was just reading lots of other writers, uh, le- reading lots of books of film criticism and, and uh, newspaper reviews and uh, trade reviews in Variety. I subscribed to Weekly Variety for several years and um, sort of just picked out the things that, that I liked about particular writers and tried uh, ad- adapting that into my own uh, writing style, which you know was very, very clunky and amateurish at the beginning. Uh, and it just you know fortunately got better over time so um but I was certainly influenced by a lot of writers uh, you know people like Donald Ritchie uh who wrote the really the definitive uh books about the the early Japanese film industry and Ozu and Kurosawa uh he did the films of Kurosawa and did these more of um uh, Uh, critical readings of the films than what I did later on with my biography of Kurosawa Um, but he you know he was an outstanding writer and then there were other writers um, uh, doing biographies or or books about you know Billy Wilder or Hitchcock or John Ford or um, or movie genres, you know, science fiction films or musicals or whatever. And I just kind of learn from everybody else.
0: Mm. In, terms of, um, in terms of the process of writing, has um, that always been like a form you've been comfortable with expression? I know you've done a lot of, um, you know, commentaries, DVDs and Blu-rays do you enjoy the process of writing? Um, were you always interested in writing growing up in school and, um, going through university and whatnot? Uh,
1: no, I I wouldn't say initially. I mean, I was a typical, uh, kid who, if I had to write like a three page essay, it seemed like, Oh my God, that's (laughs) like, how am I going to come up with three pages worth of material? Um, I think it just sort of happened gradually, and I, the the process uh, for me when I was uh, when I was doing books on on cinema, I really loved doing the research, probably more than anything else. I loved the idea of going to um, a place like the Margaret Herrick Library, which is the library of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Or the UC uh, LA Film and Television Archive, or the archives at USC, and really digging into these documents and finding things and 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 piecing uh, things together that uh, you know previously unknown information. And uh, for me, I, I love writing about uh, things that haven't been done to death. It's like um, it would be very difficult for me to write something about uh, Citizen Kane or The Wizard of Oz or, you know, movies that have been written about to death. And I, I like um, exploring uh, relatively new territory. And back when I started writing about Japanese films in the uh, early 1990s, there was, there was still so much that hadn't been really explored at all, at least in English.
0: Right, right and so when you i guess when you started some of these projects or these books um was it was it like a daunting thing just to you know start with the blank page or by this point you had all this research and you you had done all this background that you felt it was you know just a similar process just getting it out that like you mentioned, um, maybe it's information that hadn't really been you know, made public too often before and you just kind of were facilitating this process of getting it out there.
1: Um, well, I think writing any kind of book is sort of like running a marathon. You have to really pace yourself. And uh, I think on my first couple of books, uh I was so excited about what I was doing that I tended to work in these uh weird cycles where I would be up until four o'clock in the mi- in four o'clock in the morning writing furiously and i 'd work for you know like seventy two hours without any sleep and then i'd have to take seventy two hours off and you know lie exhausted on the bed. And later on, I realized, no, no, you ha- I have to be more methodical and got into a habit of, okay, I'm only going to write Monday through Friday from um, nine am. to 6 pm or whatever it was. And um, also in, in, ter- in terms of what I was doing, I mean I'm writing nonfiction. so I, I what it would happen in the early days is that I would become fascinated with some little piece of minutia that I would keep exploring and dig deeper and deeper and get really into it and sort of lose sight of the big picture and uh, realize that eventually that no, 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 you have to like really sort of regiment uh, everything uh, better. And you have to sort of think about the big picture and also dividing up all the things that you want to set out to accomplish. So I think I became, I think there's a, there's a kind of, um, technical side of writing, uh, that you also have to work on. And it's not just the creative stuff pouring out of you. Um, there are sort of, um, in order to actually get it done, Mm. to get through the whole process. So,
0: I guess in writing your books, were you were you working closely with say like publishers and editors or were you kind of more left on your own? Uh like did you have um tight deadlines or you mentioned you know you made a schedule for yourself instead of just you know going going straight for 17 yeah. hours? Um it, it, it and-
1: varied widely because um you know I, I worked with publishers uh big and small and uh, for example, on the Emperor and the Wolf, I was—I really lucked out because I had a really outstanding editor uh, named Denise Oswald, who um, was really helpful in terms of feedback. Um, once I was ready to submit the manuscript, and then we would go through the process and. She would say, "Okay, this this part here, I think, isn't entirely clear. You need to rewrite it, and re or and maybe if you move this around and restructured this this way, so a, a good editor can be invaluable. Um, and I've also had editors who uh, really, you know, offered nothing in terms of, of editorial <laughs> advice." Also, one of the things that I did, which is which I would recommend to any writer, um, is find uh, – I, I always had on, on my big projects at least two trusted friends who I could go to and who I encouraged to be absolutely merciless uh, looking at my manuscripts. And um, one in particular was particularly merciless and he would make notes on the margins and say, "Oh, this is terrible. You got to rewrite this. This is awful." And um, you have to be thick-skinned enough to be willing to say, "Oh, okay, you know." And and in his case, probably ninety percent ninety percent of the time, he was absolutely right. And um, I think um, I don't think I'm am a particularly great writer or anything, but I think I'm an I think I'm an okay writer. But one of the things that I, I am good at is um, listening to other people uh, make suggestions and to not take offense to it, and um, to be willing to rework things so that things are clearer or flow better, or um, you know, if if the writing isn't uh, up to my full potential, to go back to it and, and rewrite it. So. And I think rewriting is, in a way, um, more key to doing anything worthwhile than anything than even the first draft. Being able to go to you know set it aside for a while and then come back to it and mm. uh, really work it over and say, "Oh, this is this is really bad. I got to rewrite this. This is this could be done much better."
0: Right. Right. So, yeah. I think, yeah, I think that's a great point, uh, especially, you know, about taking constructive criticism, um, whatever, whatever art form, whatever you're creating, not, Mm. not, uh, not getting too full of yourself, I suppose, regardless of what stage in your career you are.
1: Yeah, Uh, I mean, I I know,
0: sadly, I've known people
1: who were far better writers than I, uh, but who were just you know, too thin skin to be able to sort of survive the whole process of, uh, pitching a book and then going through the editing process and then having people review the book. And, um, because there are, there are always going to be people that are going to write negative reviews and, um, you know, you have to be able to, uh, take, take all that for what it's worth.
0: Right. Sure. You mentioned, one of uh, one of the best parts for you was kind of you know digging through, digging through the hordes of material and going going to uh, going to some of these uh, vaults or the studio uh, studio offices. You would also, I guess, on your move to California to LA in the early '90s, um, you were working. At some studio as, as an archivist, can you kind of mm. get into um, how the transition to LA happened and what what's your what, what was what were the goals with the move to LA and um, you know how that how those jobs worked out, what you were kind of uh, thinking to do um, mm. as an well, archivist?
1: Uh, Before I moved, I was working as uh, a freelance film critic for the Ann Arbor News, and I was writing uh, movie reviews, and I also had, uh, at one point, two weekly uh, home video columns. Um, But I was working freelance. I wasn't a a salaried employee, and uh, around that time, I was accepted to graduate school at Uh, USC School of Cinema Television in the critical studies department so I thought oh this is a great opportunity this is like the best film school uh, in the country and particularly for me what was interesting is that USC had very close ties with uh, the major studios and to archival material and I thought oh this is a great chance to do that and um, I went through and I got my degree but I was to be honest, a little bit disappointed with the program, which was much more interested in sort of the conventional um, uh, film theory. And you had all these different professors, each with their own particular film theory that they preferred, and they were sort of fighting one another. And there, there wasn't that much interest in film history. There were a few professors there, like Richard Jewell, who was great. Um, but... Um, not a whole lot of interest. But anyway, once I got my degree, I transitioned from there to the, uh, directly pretty much to the USC Warner Brothers archives, uh, which is a great archives that has uh, material from Warner Brothers, including everything from uh, animation cells and backgrounds and musical scores and contracts and uh, production designs and all kinds of wonderful things. And I did that for a while and then eventually moved to the uh, main Warner Brothers archives where I worked for a while. And then I left that to write uh, Emperor and the Wolf. I was able to get a a large enough advance that I at least thought I could live off of it for about two years. And then after that, I uh, you know broke and destitute. I ended up uh, working at MGM uh, for several years. Um, and there I was, I kind of described that job as, uh, sort of a film detective because mm. at the time they were doing, um, they were remastering, I forget what it was. It was like 600 movies. And so, um, uh, me and, uh, two colleagues, Our job was to try to track down uh, missing original camera negatives and missing sound elements for movies, so that they could be properly remastered. So we were sort of, we were based at MGM, but we were calling and emailing all over the world trying to track down down this stuff that had, you know, it was in Technicolor, Rome, or in some lab in New Jersey or in a salt mine in Pennsylvania or whatever. So.
0: Right. And so continuing from there, um, was that something you were really into? Could you have stayed working there for a while? What, what happened with, uh, that, work? um, it was a, it
1: was a, it was a, a it was a good job. And, uh, it paid fairly well, and I, was, um, I enjoyed a, a, many aspects of it. I, I wasn't crazy either at MGM or Warner Brothers about the corporate culture uh, sure. in the sense that the people that I worked <laughs> with, most of them were really passionate film people like myself, but above us were people who were just, it was just a corporation. When I worked at Warner Brothers, for instance, our, the manager of the department that I worked at, uh, his sort of claim to fame was he, his previous experience was he had been manager at a Gap store, you know, the jeans store. Yeah. And so he sort of treated us like employees at the Gap. And, and so you have these very passionate film people, but also this, this co- corporate culture, which was a little bit stifling
0: so right right so so directly after that then um just trying to piece together the timeline you you went back to you went back to writing or um when when did the jump to japan happen that was directly well
1: i was always writing uh i mean pretty much it was always going on concurrently. Whatever job right. I had, I was still writing books and writing magazine articles and things like that. And I started coming to Japan, and the first time was in 1994. And I sort of was coming to Japan almost annually. And then after I got married, uh, my wife's Japanese. Uh, I started coming to Japan more frequently and for longer stays. So I would come uh, to Japan for maybe, uh, you know, three months at a time, the maximum like tourist visa stay. Uh, So, and, and, and my wife at the time, she, uh, her background is she works for her family's business Her family, uh, her mother founded uh, an independent uh, sort of natural uh, cosmetics company. And so uh, the whole family works for this company. And so she would, even though we were living in Los Angeles, she was having to spend about five months out of every year back in Japan helping her mother and her business. So I would often go for like, three of those five months and we were going back and forth for several years and then finally um in 2000 at the end of 2003 we basically said let's just stay in japan
0: right okay so you were able to you were not working at the uh mgm job at the time you were doing more freelance so you were able to kind of go for months at a time
1: Traveling. Um, yeah, I did some of that. I was able to go to leave the job and come back. Okay. Um, a, a couple times. I mean, I couldn't do it too often, but, um, I did, I did go and come back. And, uh, sometimes at MGM things, sh- things were always shifting around. Um, when I first started working there, they were based in Santa Monica and then I left for a while. And then when I came back, they had moved to, um, uh, century city
0: in a a much less desirable location so right 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 so then okay 2000 end of 2003 with the full-time move to Japan this the move was I guess close to where her family lived around the Kyoto area you your plan was just to continue writing and do some freelance well actually larger. her
1: her family and the 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 main headquarters for her business uh are, are not in kyoto they're actually oh, okay. on amami oshima which is for those that don't know it's a a tiny little island uh between the sort of the southern tip of what we normally think of japan kagoshima and then okinawa which is the big southern island so it's kind of this um little island that's almost like a mini Hawaii, a kind of rundown Hawaii. Um, but they had an office in Kyoto. And so my okay. wife decided to work out of the Kyoto office, and uh, we decided to uh, base ourselves
0: here. Oh, okay. Right, so the families from down that area, the Kyoto office, you guys had moved to Kyoto, and then you were continuing on Uh, mainly as a freelance writer at this time? Yeah,
1: I mean, I was doing a lot of different writing projects. Uh, It was around that time, it was a little bit frustrating because the the publishing industry was kind of collapsing at that time. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of, um, uh, there were a lot of uh, um, uh, mergers and things going on in the industry. And uh, it became very difficult to sell a book or at least sell a book so that you were able to afford being able to write it. So, um yeah. so I kind of, I drifted more and more t- toward home video where um, uh, you were, you were doing a, a lot of short term projects rather than one big long project where you could get into serious financial trouble if
0: you, if you didn't plan well. Right, right, right. Yeah, I was I was going to ask, I mean, did you did you have any um intentions or did you have any goals of maybe trying to do something similar to like um archivist work um in Japan as well or you kind of thought it was going to be um writing most of the time or what what were your kind of ideas um. of getting into that? film industry in japan
1: um no i mean first of all my japanese is terrible so i would never be able to work in a, in a japanese film even and um although i am somewhat knowledgeable about japanese film there there are big gaps that i i know very little about i don't know very much about japanese silent cinema for instance and Uh, certain genres and periods and things I I know less about and more about other things. So um, I I don't really, it's funny when I look back, I'm not sure. I I remember I tried a bunch of different things for, for a while. I had a, um, uh, again, this is the early two thousands. I had a video rental by mail uh, company similar to what Netflix Uh, originally was in in the US. Uh, I had, by that time, had amassed a fairly extensive um, DVD collection. And uh, the DVDs included a lot of foreign films with English and uh, quite often French and Spanish subtitles. And so I thought, oh, this could be a good service for the foreign community. And I set up a rent by mail service. And it was fairly successful for four or five years. And then eventually people started streaming and doing other things. So, um, so that didn't last very long, but it lasted a while. And then I had other various sort of day jobs. I had a very successful Airbnb business for, I don't know, six years, seven years. And, uh, stop doing that because it's really, really difficult. I mean, this is sort of one of the, one of the key points is that it's nowadays almost impossible to make a living as a full-time writer. Uh, when I, when I started out, it was kind of the last gasps of, um, being able to work at a newspaper and make a living doing that. And now there are hardly any newspapers anymore because everything's online And everything is free uh, or nearly free. And it's the same thing with uh, writing books. Um, It's almost impossible to make a living writing books.
0: And so you just move on to other things. Right, right. Um, In terms of just writing, you know, writing for yourself or continuing the writing process, doing film reviews, DVD, Blu-ray reviews, um, is that something that like you feel that you always want to keep up or you want to keep going um, throughout your life? Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, it's something that I really enjoy. I mean, I'm still writing for DVD Talk and I get these uh, parcels with 10 or 15 Blu-rays in them. And uh, occasionally you find some movie that you've barely heard of. And you put it on, and I'm seeing it for the first time, and it's like, wow, this is really, really a great movie, and yet nobody knows about it. It's a, it's a movie that uh, people are not familiar with, so I love writing about that kind of thing. I don't need to write about um, you know, the latest Marvel movie or, or that kind of thing. It has no interest to me because there's there are hundreds of other people writing about this stuff, as well as people... Uh, talking about it on YouTube channels and everything else. But, um, you know, finding some obscure little pre-code Hollywood film or obscure Japanese movie nobody knows about or um, French movies uh, that were never released in the U.S. for, you know, 50 years and they finally come out on Blu-ray and to be able to write about that, that, that to me is very exciting and I really enjoy doing that. Um, And the same thing with some of these uh, Blu-ray projects and other home video projects that I work on, because sometimes these movies um, are being released in the West for the first time. And so people are uh, seeing these things totally fresh and to be able to uh, research these movies and come up with interesting new information that uh, no one in the West was familiar with beforehand. Um, that's, that's really exciting to me too.
0: Right. Um, I guess in terms of switching it up a little bit in terms of someone who's really interested in films these days and kind of wants to get involved or do some writing or they want to, you know, impact or comment some way on film. Um, what what would kind of be some of your advice for them? You mentioned writing is more difficult. Maybe um, Maybe just start something on the internet, obviously maybe a blog or get into, I know there's a bunch of film like podcasts and people speaking on film. What what do you think uh, is kind of maybe the future of film criticism?
1: Mm, The future is, uh, that is very hard to even uh, begin to guess what that's going to be like. I think uh, if you are passionate about cinema, um, really the main piece of advice I would have for, for somebody is to just try to watch everything. Um, in a way it's more important than trying to, before you try to break into some particular industry or field is try to just see as much of everything as you can. Um, one of the things that I, I see with a lot of, uh, people that have blogs or podcasts or whatever is that they tend to focus on one area and they, they get become very, knowledgeable about one particular genre or one particular film series or or one particular country or period and then they they everything else gets shut out Mm. Uh, i know people that are hardcore uh classic horror and sci-fi fans and they know those movies you know frame by frame practically but they haven't seen Casablanca and they haven't seen Singing in the Rain and they haven't right. seen you know, anything else. And that's true of a lot of people. And uh, I think even within Japanese cinema, I see a lot of that where people are really into Yakuza films or Chambara films, but then they have no interest in uh, Naruse or Ozu or, or other kinds of Japanese films. And, and the reverse is true, too, where you have kind of film snobs who love Ozu and, and uh, that kind of thing, but they're, they're not interested in other kinds of Japanese cinema. So there, people tend to see things in these vacuums where mm-hmm. they're not aware of everything else around them. I think for me, with my, all of my writing generally, but particularly when I do an audio commentary on a particular film, Part of my main goal is to try to put it into context, um, into context in terms of uh, the, the film industry at the time, in terms of popular culture context, uh, things that were going on historically in Japan, things that, that were going on in the careers of the people who made it at that point, things that had come right before, genre trends, uh, trying to, put it in into context, I think is
0: very important. Right? Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, not necessarily closing yourself off and saying, you know, oh, I'm just a fan of this, just a fan of that. The more exposure you get to everything, yeah, in cinema, you're gonna be more informed about where certain ideas, certain trends, influences around the world, Mm, you have to eat your vegetables too so (laughs) right right um i'm curious for you 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 mentioned briefly uh you had this uh comedy book idea um if if you could kind of do like a dream project where you didn't you didn't have to worry about funding and money they would just give you all the resources you wanted um if you could if you could write a book or maybe do a documentary or, you know, mm. some uh, some commentaries that you could do about any film. Do you have some projects that uh, had been kind of rolled well, around? I've, always,
1: I've had a lot of different projects that just sort of have been on the back burner for years. I mean, besides that comedy book idea, um, for many years I've also wanted to do, Uh, A really definitive book about uh, Charles Bronson because uh, Bronson today is sort of almost in some ways thought of as a joke because of all the Death Wish sequels and those kind of Mm -hmm. things. But he was really um, a unique actor uh, in a lot of ways. And he had this fascinating career where he started out as a Hollywood actor and then he went to Europe and he became a huge film star in Europe, particularly France and Italy, and, and ironically enough, Japan, but not in the United States. And he did these really interesting movies with major directors and major actors like Alain Delon and others. And then he kind of went through this next phase where he then became a big star in the United States after his European movies played for years in grindhouses. And then he kind of rose up to the ranks where he was about the equal of Clint Eastwood for a number of years, and then he went through this other transformation where he started doing these really, really trashy movies for canon, uh, which are are fun in their own way, but are not really representative of his whole career. And he was just this, also this fascinating guy because he came from this, you know, family of coal miners uh, and many kids and. Um, became this kind of very reticent anti-Hollywood kind of uh, personality. Um, And I think he would be really interesting to write about. Uh, But again, that would involve, I'd have to like travel to Pennsylvania and to Europe and do interviews and things. And it would just be prohibitively expensive,
0: unfortunately. Right, right, right. Um, Had you... Had you uh, approached some publishers or had you done any initial research about that one?
1: Uh, Yeah, I, I approached people and a lot of people were like Charles Bronson. Who's he? (laughs) So, yeah. Um, it was like, Oh no, who's, who's interested in Charles Bronson. And the interesting thing is when I worked at MGM, uh, we had, uh, all the movies in the library, like however many thousands, 3000 titles, uh, the the sales department ranked them uh like a b c d based on um how well they sold internationally because mgm was selling you know not just in the us and canada but selling home video rights to france and television rights to india and all over the world and the the top rated films in terms of their marketability were all charles bronson movies Wow. I was, it was basically James Bond and Charles Bronson were like the best sellers at MGM.
0: Really? Really? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I guess to shift back a little bit, um, yeah, I guess he would have been popular in Japan as well then, as you mentioned.
1: Oh yeah. Bronson uh, was huge. I mean, and he made, you know, the, the, the famous television commercials in the 1970s and, um, he was very, very big in Japan in the 19th. I mean, still to some extent, Mm. but, but in the seventies particularly, he was huge.
0: Right. Um, yeah, you mentioned to switch back to Japan a little bit, you mentioned, you know, you'd like to introduce people to maybe, you know, a wide range of, genres or different types and not necessarily you know one specialty if you could i know it's asking a little bit uh but if if you could like someone who's just coming into japanese film or someone who's looking to get their start like where to where to get started someone coming up these days with just what netflix is offering and they want to branch out a little bit um what's what would be, for example, like five movies that would be a good introduction, you'd say, to Japanese cinema? Uh just generally, uh
1: yeah, generally yeah, just, speaking. Yeah. Um oh boy. Um uh, I I I mean certainly you can't go wrong. I, I would say obviously uh pick almost any random Ozu movie, maybe Tokyo story, any yeah. Kurosawa movie uh, maybe something like high and low and but also i I think um if if you really want to understand uh Japanese cinema but also Japanese culture generally, I think um, the the Toresan film series is really great because it's mm. it's really a time capsule of what Japan was like uh over a 50 year span i mean basically 1969 to the to the present i mean with the the latest film just came out about a year ago right and um you can learn a lot about uh japanese culture and and the toruson movies are kind of in a way an extension of ozu it takes ozu into the into the modern age um and maybe uh, Juzo Itami. And uh, I would also, uh, I'm a big fan of um, Koreeda. Um, mm. His films are all really outstanding. And they also, I think, um, they do something which very few recent Japanese movies do, is they really express so much of the Japanese psyche in terms of... Um, Work and family relations, and how people relate to one another, and how communities look and how they operate, and everything. Um, mm-hmm. His movies are really outstanding. I'm not a big fan of most recent Japanese movies, but I, I pretty much have loved all of his films. Right,
0: right. Yeah, I know it was a little bit tricky just to put you on the spot there, but I think those yeah. are <laughs> for 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 people to. For people just looking to jump in a little bit, those are definitely, I can't go wrong with those directors you listed there. Um, maybe an- another, a little bit, a little bit of a tricky one, but can have you kind of thought about, or is it something that you've been conscious of, really what it is about Japanese film and Japanese culture, Japan, that has resonated with you, um, that you know has caused you to you know move to japan write write all these books about Japanese cinema culture have you kind of uh is that something that you're conscious of or not really well i think uh my
1: my um desire to live in Japan is a little bit different from some people, although I do write about Japanese cinema a lot uh I'm not super passionate about say other traditional Japanese arts. I'm not like, uh, obsessed with Kabuki or, or anything like that. Um, I think, um, you know, in, in his later years, I got to know Donald Ritchie slightly. Um, and he, uh, was very different, completely different for me in a lot of ways but one thing where we were on exactly the same wavelength is um, the main appeal for us of living in Japan is uh, we enjoy being the perennial outsider. And, um, you know, he liked to say, I'm, I'm, I'm not a joiner. Uh, I don't like to be part of, you know, the group. And in Japan, people will, there are no expectations. Um, of you you're not expected to become Japanese and you, you never can become Japanese so you're always going to be the outsider and that um, uh, bothers some people who come to Japan and try really really hard and they they learn Japanese fluently and everything else um, but I like being the on the outside so that's part of the appeal and um, a lot of it is just it's it's practical stuff in a lot of ways, because, um, you know, I've lived in Japan now almost 20 years, and uh, I've gotten, I've, I've ended up in the hospital a couple times, I was in a, in a bad motorcycle accident uh, once, and I had uh, uh, chicken pox in my mid or late 40s, and, and almost died, I had a very high fever. And I don't have to worry about Health insurance. I mean, when I had the chicken pox, I was taken to the hospital, hospital by ambulance and treated in the emergency room, and I spent a week in the hospital and had, uh, you know, medication and daily doctor's visits and everything. And the the tab for all that was like a hundred dollars. And if I was still living in Los Angeles, it would have bankrupted me. It would have been like easily a hundred thousand uh, dollars. So there's sort of the, the the practical side of it as well. And now that I live in this uh, old, you know, 200 plus year old house in the mountains, uh, I I don't have to pay, you know, $3,000 a month rent, which is probably what I would be paying in Los Angeles if I was still there. And, uh, you know, the cost of living and everything is so much better.
0: Right, right. Yeah, that's a lot of those points really resonate with myself as well, Mm -hmm. having been here i guess 11 11 or so years now myself so in terms of like you said the perennial outsider um i wanted to you know touch on well now you're living i'm sure when you were closer to the city um you'd obviously run into more foreigners but where you are now and your new passion newish passion for the country life the japanese minka mm. can can you kind of uh can you kind of talk about that a little bit where where that passion came from and what it's like living uh, i guess in a small mountain town and in the old 200-year-old house and um, i i think there are at least my understanding there are more foreigners who that lifestyle appeals to them and there's communities you uh, you showed me the Facebook group communities hmm. of people. Can you kind of speak about that community and what it, what it's like? I guess you're definitely going to be one of the few foreigners in your town, if not the only one, right? Oh, I'm, well, I'm not actually the only one. There
1: are several okay. other other foreigners, even in my small village, which is only about um, maybe 150 people. Okay. Um, so it's uh, among foreigners, it is becoming more and more popular, and there's been a lot of news coverage uh, over the last year or so about these, you know supposedly free houses that are in the Japanese countryside. And they're not really yeah. free. I mean, they're, they're sort of they can be technically free. But um, you know, there are these beautiful, beautiful homes that are all sitting empty. And being and not being used um, since the end of World War II, like many parts of the world, everybody uh, emigrated from these villages and in, moved into the big urban megalopolises of, in, in Japan's case, Tokyo and Osaka and so on. And uh, combined with Japan's aging population, uh, a lot of these villages are full of empty houses that are now available for basically the price of a car. And, um, you know, I have friends in California who uh, are either paying insane amounts of money for rent or they live in a house that's really, really tiny and is like a million dollars. And in Japan, uh, housing prices generally are much lower, but out in the country, you can actually move into this Architecturally significant, aesthetically gorgeous house on a big plot of land, and you can do uh, farming or, or set up a business or whatever uh, for a tiny fraction of, of the cost. And I, I'm actually very optimistic about the future of uh, this kind of lifestyle in these villages because uh, so much is changing so quickly. Uh, you have First of all, I think if I had, if I had tried to live here 40 years ago, it would have been very difficult. But now everything is high speed internet. So I can stay connected with the rest of the world. I can work from, from home. I can order anything almost that I want on the internet and have it delivered the next day. So it's not inconvenient at all. And with the pandemic and climate change and everything happening, I think that more and more people are are becoming interested in sustainable living and organic farming and working from home and all those kinds of things and if you're going to do that it's much nicer to be out somewhere where the air is clean and the water's clear and you have a lot of room to rattle around in rather than some you know cramped uh Tokyo apartment so um so there's that and the the quality of life is just for me anyway is is and for my family is so much better when we lived in the the main part of kyoto city for example when my daughter was going to elementary school she was going to a typical public school which had about 800 students and now she's going to a school where in her class it's her and four other kids so she's basically getting twenty percent of the teacher's undivided attention, which she could never get in a in a school in the city. Right. So there's all these you know myriad ways that I think there are, there are all these huge advantages, and certainly some people are are dyed in the wool urbanites who would go crazy living out here. Uh, but for me, I absolutely love it.
0: Right. Yeah, I think um, it's an idea that. Appeals for me a little bit later in my life. And like you say, um, many foreigners in terms of uh, what it's going to offer them, maybe retirement possibilities or just because of because of the way, you know, the Internet and you can get shipping anywhere. I think, like you said, it's something that is catching on and may continue to catch on in the future. So, yeah, I got to thank you for this, Stuart. I have, uh, I've got two final questions that I ask every guest, um, if that's all right with you. Okay. So, yeah, as this is called the Inspirations Podcast. Um, let's start with the first one related to that. Question is, what are three things or three people that have really inspired you uh, in your work or your life? Either um, it can be, you know, anything in your writing, in your books, or um, just in film or life in general. Three things or three people who have really inspired you. Ah, oh, boy, oh boy, that's a tough one. Um, um,
1: well, I think if I was talking about cinema, I would probably have to say. Um, Uh, certainly Kurosawa and uh, probably uh, Orson Welles. And then uh, the third one I'd probably divide among four or five other major directors like Billy Wilder and Howard Hawks and and, uh, people like that. And then there's also the uh, other writers that – I'm sorry, I'm kind of breaking. I'm going over three, but um, but certainly Donald Ritchie was a major influence as a writer, and then other other um, you know writers who maybe only did one or two books that just had this big of impact on me. A writer named Bill Warren did a really great book called "Keep Watching the Skies," and mm. and um, um, there's a, 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 oddly enough, there's a book by. A writer named Sean Levy about Jerry Lewis, and uh, which is a fantastic book. And I'm not a particularly big fan of Jerry Lewis at all, but it is such a well-written book that I was—I just love it. I read it cover to cover five or six times through the years, and I've kind of been very strongly inspired by how he writes about Jerry Lewis. So it doesn't—it doesn't matter if you're not a fan of Jerry Lewis or not, but the way it's written makes a big
0: big uh it
1: made a big impact on me
0: right okay yeah that was good yeah um that definitely doesn't have to be doesn't have to be limited to three that's just the number i put out and uh the last one for you then so what what does it mean for you then uh maybe someone has gone through your books they read your books or your audio commentaries or some of your, your reviews like myself. Um, what, what does it mean for you to be inspirational to others? So maybe get them interested in a certain topic or they're a big fan of your writing or some of your commentary work. What, What does it mean for you to be an inspiration to other people?
1: Um, well, I think for me, uh, in my writing, and even at a personal level, uh, I am the biggest thrill for me is when I can get somebody else to watch a movie they otherwise wouldn't see, and they they watch the movie and they totally fall in love with it and they get very excited and they wanted to see and they want to see other movies by the same director, and, and it, it just you know it gets gets the the ball rolling um and that's that's true you know when i have um house guests and i say oh let's watch a movie and and uh, and uh it'll be like um well what do you want to what do you want to watch and i always want to show them something that they haven't seen mm-hmm. and something maybe they never even heard of and and then they see it and they're they're so excited and that that to me is very exciting um, in terms of kind of the other part of the question, and I, I think that if you are a writer, the most important thing is that um, not whether people like or dislike what you're doing. It's very important, I think, that you have, um, uh, a, you're able to step out of yourself and look at the work and really judge it honestly and give yourself credit for where you have succeeded. And then to also uh, learn from where you're you're falling short, and I think that has always, for me, helped me. F- I mean, reading reviews, positive or negative, of my books or my other work, um, doesn't have a whole lot of impact. It's mostly me looking at it and, and assessing it and 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 honestly saying, okay, this is. I, I set out to accomplish this this is where I succeeded and this is where I fell short. And this is what I need to work on for the next project.
0: Perfect. Yeah, that is great advice for, yeah, like I said before, artists, creators of any kind, really. Um, So I got to thank you once again um, for coming on and doing the interview. I got to thank you, you know, for all the work you've done, the menu reviews, film reviews introducing myself as well, um, to a lot of great films, your work on Japanese cinema. And, uh, if people want to follow your work or keep up with you, do you have, uh, do you have some places on social media? People can check out what's going on.
1: Uh, well, I'm on Facebook and, uh, certainly I think the DVD talk site um is a good place to go because that that offers links to my most of my other stuff so that's a good catch-all kind of kind of portal to, to other other stewart galbraith's
0: projects okay can find you on facebook and then i kind of like that blog you have on your minka as well that's uh hanaseminka.wordpress.com oh, yeah, yeah.
1: I haven't updated that, but we actually – I've been very involved with a I, – I co-founded a um, um, Facebook group that has – about Minka that has expanded – it's expanding into a, a website that's going to debut actually probably uh, later this week or early next week called and. Okay. Uh, uh, that has a lot, a lot of the kind of stuff you're talking about on that blog is going to be on that website. Uh, but also contributions from other, uh, Minka owners throughout Japan.
0: Okay. Perfect. That that's kominka net. Okay. Perfect.
1: Well, thank you for, ha- thank you for having me. It's been fun.
0: Yeah. Thanks a lot for sharing some advice and some stories and, um, some thoughts on, film in Japan, your history. So yeah, thanks. Thanks once again, Stuart. If you wanna hear more insightful and inspirational chats from people based in Japan and all over the world, make sure to follow us at adsrcollective.com. We're on Instagram and Twitter at ADSR Collective. Then listen to the pod on Spotify, Apple, Google, and more. Thanks again for taking the time to listen. Until next time, stay inspired.